Church family, I'm going to invite you as we continue to worship to turn to the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the second chapter, Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. This morning, once again, I wish that you as a church could have had a front row seat to the way that our students so faithfully served this week in New Orleans. You would have been so proud of, of our students. They, this last week, in the midst of sweltering heat and humidity there in New Orleans, they served faithfully alongside of church planters and church partners. They did a variety of things from hosting um, backyard sort of art and music festivals there in neighborhoods to be able to draw people uh, into relationships and conversations with local churches in that area. They utilized the gift of music from the chapel choir, jazz band, to the chapel choir, even the puppet team. I mean, as a platform to be able to build relationships. They did some hard work throughout that week. They were working in the Ninth Ward, uh, cleaning out storm drains and picking up trash. They were in the French Quarter doing a variety of ministry to, to the homeless and to partners that are caring for uh, some of the least of these in, in our whole nation. And, and what a front row seat to see God working in the life of not just our students, but as you know, as you are able to see that God is already at a place and he's already faithfully moving. So our students had a front row seat to see God at work and faithfully using those that we had the privilege to serve with and, and, and alongside of. And so I'm glad to report to you as a church that our students are leading and they're leading faithfully and you would have been so proud of the way that they represented our church this, this last week. Praise God for them. Uh, tonight we'll have our, our chapel choir student concert. So that's at 6 o'clock. We encourage you to be back for that. I know you'll be encouraged. If you're new to Dawson, we're walking through Revelation 2, Revelation 3. There are seven addresses that the risen and glorified Jesus gives to seven churches. John writes them down. John is exiled on the island of Patmos, and he's writing to, at that time, what would have been the Western Asia Minor. Uh, now it is Western Turkey is what we know, and there are seven churches, and this kind of crooked horseshoe that he's writing to, and we're taking each one of these letters in a sequence, and we're hearing how God's Word continues to speak to us now, today, in our context, in our culture. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they may eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus says to this church in Pergamum, I know where you live, which is not just a, a geographical location, like I know where you are on the map. 
But what he's saying is to this church, I know the pressures and I know the temptations. I know that you dwell, notice these two references here. He says, you dwell in the place where Satan dwells. You dwell in the place where Satan's throne is. These are are really strong words. Nobody wants to move into the neighborhood with Satan as your neighbor, right? So, I mean, Jesus is saying something here that we have to sort of understand. I I thought you might be thinking, I thought Satan had a home. It's called hell. What does it mean that he has this throne in the place where this church lives? What does it mean that he dwells in that place there? To understand this, you've got to go back in time a little bit. So imagine with us that we are able to go back 2,000 years ago and you're able to walk the streets of Pergamum. What would you have seen in Pergamum. I tell you what you would have seen is you'd have seen temples everywhere. Temples to the Greek gods around every corner. For those of you that grew up in Alabama or any other southeastern buckle, the Bible Belt kind of uh, city and state, you, you know that phrase, hey, there is a Baptist church on every corner. Well, in Pergamum, there is a pagan temple around every corner. You, you could go around one corner and see the temple to Dionysus, the god of of debauchery, the god of pleasure, and you could have been able to offer sacrifices to Dionysus. You could have entered into temple prostitution right there in Pergamum. There were sacrifices that were being made. Then you go to the next corner, and there's another temple, a temple there to Athena, the god of wisdom, and then you go around another corner, and there's the temple to Demeter, the, the god of harvest and fertility. Then you could have gone up to the height what, what Pergamon would have been known for on the top of this hill, at the, at the very top of it, is this great throne that would offer sacrifices to the, to the god of the gods in Greek mythology, which is the god of Zeus. Come back to the land, and the first temple made to honor and to worship a, a living Roman emperor, the Roman emperors of the day, they would deify themselves. They would say, I am God. You need to bow down and worship me. This first happened around 29 BC, Emperor Augustus. And guess what? First temple right there in Pergamum. So around every corner, you have the ability to, to have religion and spiritualism all around you. But this is devoid of the gospel. This is not worship of the God revealed to us in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That This is paganism uh, rampant. And what, what Jesus is saying is, is there is an enemy. And what we know about the enemy is that Satan seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And one of the primary motivations and manifestations of that is he is a deceiver. He lies. So you know what Satan wants to do? He he wants to lead us away from the worship of God. And so in this city, there are a lot of obstacles to the worship of the one true God. There are a lot of options that people had to worship other gods, false gods, to be in the midst of sexual immorality, in the midst of idolatry. It It was around them in every corner. But guess what? There's a church that is standing strong in the midst of this. Maybe they're few in number. But the witness is strong. And there's one that Jesus mentions here that stood so strong that that he he met death itself because of his faithfulness to the gospel. We don't know much about him, but Jesus gives us his name. His name is Antipas. 
And he, Jesus tells us, is the faithful witness. That, that word is where we get the word martyr from. A martyr was a witness. Now, for 2,000 years, we use the word martyr as one who dies for their faith. And for 2,000 years, there have been millions of Christians whose their blood has been the very seed of growth for the Christian church to spread across this world. And here we have Antipas. We don't know much about him, but like Stephen that came before him in the book of Acts, he stood for the gospel. Like many of the disciples who met the sword and met uh, crucifixion, he refused to bow down to the pressures around him, and, and the result of that was death. We don't know how it happened. We don't know exactly when it happened. We can build a little bit of a historical reconstruction. We know what emperor worship was like. It would be a busk of the emperor with, uh, on top of a high column and with a fire in front of it. And all the citizens would have come in there and they would have to put a grain of incense and pull the fire, this sacrificial altar to this, to this Roman person, leader, who they said would be God. And then you would have to say in that moment, Caesar is Lord. That's all you had to do and you'd go scot-free. We don't know anything about Antipas. We could imagine maybe he was a husband. We could imagine maybe he has children. We could imagine the pressures in that moment to just go up to that altar, just put some grains of incense upon it, to cross his fingers behind his back and to sort of mumble out of his mouth, Caesar is Lord. But he can't do it. He doesn't do it. Because there's only one Lord, and that is Christ who is Lord. And we don't know what he did in that moment, but we have account after account after account of martyrs, women, and men who come to that moment. Maybe it is a a fire squadron that they're before. Maybe it's a fiery pit that they're being thrown into. Maybe it's wild animals that they're before. We have account and account and account of these kinds of stories. And one thing that we hear again and again is they met their death with a song on their mouth. at the city square of Prague where hundreds of years ago the great reformer John Huss who preached faithfully the Bible who critiqued the corruption of the then Catholic church was taken by an executioner in that moment he was asked recount your teachings or die and there in the city square in front of everyone the fire is lit Below him, and he is consumed by the smoke, he's consumed by the fire, but he refuses to recant his faith. And as the story tells us of history, in that moment, on his lips are these words the song of a Latin chant Christ, thou son of the living God, have mercy upon me. I don't know about Antipas, but but maybe a, a first century version of I've decided to follow Jesus was on his mouth and from his lips. Maybe Antipas said, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. The world behind me, the cross before me, I have decided to follow Jesus, and he paid the ultimate price for it, and he is not the only one who has done that. Millions of Christians have paid this price, and Jesus says, I know where you live, 
And I know the faithfulness in the face of persecution that you have, even those that have lost their life, and he sees their faithfulness, but not all are faithful. There's not just compliments coming from the mouth of our Savior, but there is in verse 14 the changing of the tune that Jesus is singing before this church when he says, but I have a few things against you. You have some, not all, but there's some in the church at Pergamum who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they may eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Also, verse 15, Jesus says, some hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What is going on here in the church at Pergamum? I would be dishonest if I stood before you and said that I could exhaustively explain these passages. There's some things about these passages that we just don't know the full details of. And when we get to heaven, maybe we'll have a a front row seat of, of what was occurring with those Christians there in Pergamum. And all the questions will be answered for the eternity before us. But this side of heaven, there's a lot left to our speculation. This we do know, that there's false teaching that has occurred, and the false teaching is compared to a story, this is a real specific story in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 22 through Numbers chapter 25. It's one of these stories that if you've grown up in the church, the vacation Bible school stories of this story, and the, uh, the, the Sunday school stories of, 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 of Numbers chapter 22 through Numbers chapter 25 can walk with you because you have this prophet named Balaam who has a donkey. And that story has been passed down because it's really, really memorable. But you might know the contours of the story, but you can kind of forget what the story was about. So in Numbers chapter 22, there's a pagan king in Moab and his name is Balak. And he comes to a prophet and he says, the Israelites are here. You are a prophet. I want to hire you to go out and to curse the Israelites. Can you do that for me? I'll pay you. What's your asking price? Here's my checkbook. I'll fill it in for you. Balaam, this prophet, says, hey, I'm your man. I'll do that. So he goes out to to curse the Israelites and he speaks these words. And the words aren't a curse, but they're a blessing. He blesses the Israelites when he's trying to curse them. So he says, I've got to come back. I've got to regroup. So he comes out the second time and he goes to to curse the Israelites. And the words that come out of his mouth, guess what? Again, it's a blessing. Got to regroup. Got to figure this out. And he comes back the third time. The third time's a charm, right? And Balaam, this prophet, stands before the Israelites and he attempts to curse them. And guess what? Once again, God intervenes and there is a blessing that comes out of his mouth. And so Balaam, this prophet, says, I have been thwarted by God. I I, I want to do what you're asking me to do, but I cannot curse them. He says, but I've got another way that you can sidetrack the Israelites. I've got another plan for a way that you can get them off course. There are foreign gods that you can tempt them with to worship, the, the, the gods of Baal, and they'll go that direction. And there, there are prostitutes in this land that you can put before the men of the Israelites, and guess what? They will give in to sexual immorality. And if you know the story of Numbers 22 through Numbers 25, Balaam, 
Although he could not curse or he could not curse the Israelites, he was exactly right that they could implode from within because of idolatry and sexual immorality. And we don't know all the details of what's going on in the church at Pergamum, but the same thing is happening in that church. Immorality and idolatry have run rampant. And we can, we can kind of imagine how that would be the case. I mean, if you wanted to be on the PTO of, of Pergamum in that time, you had, you had to go along to get along. The, the idolatry and the worship of gods, this wasn't just a quaint little thing for a little group of people. It was the, it was the ebb and flow of life. So to be a part of this culture, to be a mover and a shaker, you would have felt the temptation to be a part of the immorality of that day and the idolatry of that day. It would have been all around you. It would have been the air that everyone breathed. And so you have Christians 2,000 years ago in Pergamum that say, hey, I want one foot in the word of God. I want one foot in the worship of the one true God. But can I just have one other foot in the idolatry of the land. Can I have it both ways? Can I worship at the temples? And can I worship the one true God? And Jesus says, there are some of you who need to turn around because your allegiances are divided. Now I know what you're thinking. Boy, great history lesson. Now we know. We can close up our Bibles. We can beat the Presbyterians to lunch or something here, and we can move on. But notice in this passage here that Jesus is telling a word, not just that's historical, but a word to us today that is contemporaneous for us. You and I, every church, feels the temptation to want to love Jesus with a part of our heart, a part of our mind, a part of our soul, and to save a part, to embrace the values of this world. And our world, do not be confused. Our world is religious. Our world has a value system that desires to captivate your heart's affection. And we have the ability to worship outside of a church. We have the ability to worship outside of the worship of the one true God. And we, we bow down and we give our hearts to the, to the idols of self-expression and self-fulfillment. And even today, we feel the pressure to participate and to support. This is June. June is Pride Month. It's a month where the LGB TQI community locally, statewide, nationally, have a host of events throughout the entire month to celebrate the advancements of that movement, to celebrate the identity with that movement. As we come to the end of June, I think everyone living in this world would say, what would be a Christian response to this? I think it's important to say there are a lot of true and good things to say about any and every person who embraces this movement. Every person who identifies with this movement is an image bearer. 
Every person who identifies with this movement is created uniquely in the image of God. They're precious, they're valuable, they're unique. Jesus loves them, he died for them, desires to redeem them. So we retire language, we don't use language. These people are not the enemy. For, for many of us, these, these people that would embrace this movement, embrace this ideology, would give their hearts affections and say, this is my identity. These, these would be people that are family, friends, neighbors, co-workers. And of course, as Christians, we're called to treat with respect and dignity and honor. But as a Christian, guided by a fixed point called the Word of God, it's important to say what we cannot as Christians do, which is to say that we can support this celebration. Because ultimately, we can't say that we support positions on gender and marriage that the Bible contradicts and at times warns against. When you see a rainbow and I see a rainbow, its utilization and meaning is not to be defined by any modern movement. It has been spoken for in the very word of God as God defined what it would stand for after the flood. And he placed it in the sky as a reminder. I don't have to be rude about this or mad about this. I also don't need to be surprised or shocked that you and I live in a world where people don't agree that the Bible teaches this. You don't have to be surprised or shocked that we live in a world where people freely choose to not submit to the teachings of the Bible. But as Christians, we're called to show love and honor and respect and humility to people on both sides of any issue. And boy, it seems to be that there are a whole lot of issues to be on sides of now in the 21st century. And so as Christians, we we need to reclaim that I can disagree with someone and still show love and kindness and learn from them and be a friend to them and to pray for them and to have an authentic relationship with them. But as a Christian, I cannot ignore the fact that the Bible teaches that this path and other paths do not lead to the flourishing that God intends for you and me and for humanity. Just like Jesus is saying, the worship of Greek gods and the sexual immorality that accompanies this, you will not pursue this and find flourishing. Now, I know it's, it's, it's easy to, at this point to parse things out and to try to nuance this and say, well, David, nobody's building temples. No one's saying, hey, we need to go bow down and worship. But notice that idolatry is, is ancient, but it is contemporaneous. And there is still an enemy that is crafty. And idolatry is just giving your heart's affections to any object. And we live in a day and age where our heart's affections are being called for. There is a siren song calling for our heart's affections down the road of self-fulfillment and self-expression. There is a religion that all of us will have to choose whether or not we will follow down this path where we're tempted to believe and accept that your heart and your feelings are the ultimate determiner, arbiter, path to truth. 
So what this means is, if it feels good and it feels right, then it has to, in turn, lead to the good life. This is the religion of the day. If it feels good and if it feels right, then in turn it must lead to the flourishing life. But what if our feelings and our desires could lead us to a dead-end road? I heard a pastor talking about this years ago, and he talked about a ship that is at sea centuries ago. Before all the nautical advancements that we would have at a ship uh, in the 21st century. And he says, imagine a, a sailor who is on this ship, and he's new to the crew. He's new to the captain. And all of his training has, has given him this idea that you look at the North Star to find a fixed reference point, but he noticed that his training doesn't square with the training and the practice of the captain or the ship there. And so confused, the sailor goes up to the captain and he says, hey, excuse me, but where are we going? And the captain looks at the sailor and he says, hey, listen, hey, we do things a little differently here. Do you see the lantern on the ship's bow? That, my friend, is our guiding light. That's how we're making our way across the sea. The ship's movement doesn't make sense to the sailor. Why? Because what's guiding the ship is a reference point on the ship. The ship is adrift and the captain doesn't know it. The ship is adrift and the rest of the crew doesn't know it. They, they are voyaging off course because the reference point is on the boat. Your life is in this image. You, you have a course that is before you and a destination that is ahead before you. And you need a reference point that is outside of yourself Outside of this world, we need a north star that is a fixed place because the Bible tells us that every human is trapped in the labyrinth of the world and flesh and the devil. And we've taken our eyes off of God. We've taken our eyes off of the Creator. And we, we are tempted to look within the ship of creation to find our way. But God says, I've got a better way. I've got a fixed point in me, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that has spoken a word to us that is a guide for all of us who would turn to him. Jesus gives us this image in verse 16 where there's a sword that is a two-edged sword that is coming from the mouth of our Savior, which is a reminder that the word of God, it comforts and it convicts. The word of God, it encourages us and it exhorts us. The word of God is not neutral. It's, it's not, it is not a consultant that says, what do you think about this? It is a fixed point that is a north star. And the question is, will we set our course to this fixed point or will we choose something else? And this world has a lot of options. I mean, it did 2,000 years ago. And it does now. But if you hold fast to him, Jesus, if you turn to him for salvation, he promises that you are on a ship, the ship of salvation that is headed to a certain destination. It's not open for discussion. It, it is a place that he has prepared for you that he highlights and previews right here in verse 17. 
the conclusion and culmination of this address to this church. He says, for those who hold fast, I will give some of them. And notice what he says so beautifully here, the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So we have these images that are, are floating before us one after another where Jesus is describing the, the course that any follower of Jesus has before them as the, as the fixed destination. This is, this is heaven before us, the new heaven and the new earth, where he says, I've got a banquet table for you with hidden manna to nourish you. This is an allusion, of course, to the Israelites that are wandering in the wilderness and they're longing for the buffet line back in Egypt and God provides them food that nourishes them and one day we will be at the great marriage supper of the Lamb and we will have a feast before us. When we feast in the house of Zion and we will eat and we will hunger no more. We will feast on a meal of his presence that isn't polluted by the shackles of sin. It's, it's not polluted by our finitude as human beings who are sinful, but we'll be in his presence and we'll enjoy this feast together. But it's not just this hidden manna that he gives us. He also will give us a white stone. What is he talking about? 2,000 years ago, you'd have juries. They would decide whether the accused was guilty or they were innocent. And you know how they would do that. They would have stones and the accused who the jury would find innocent, you know what they would do? They would cast a white stone. And the accused that they would find guilty, they would cast a dark stone. So if they were innocent, a white stone. If they were guilty, a dark stone. And so what Jesus is saying is, is I've given to every follower of Christ, I've given you a white stone saying all of your sins have been acquitted. All of your sins have been forgiven. There is nothing that separates you from me because it is covered by the blood of Jesus. I have redeemed you. I have purchased you and you are mine forevermore. But that's not it. I mean, that would be a lot, wouldn't it? The hidden manna that feeds us the promise of his acquittal for all of our sins, but he goes on to tell us something that is so beautiful. He gives us a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I could preach for decades and not fully explain what I think is, is absolutely mysterious about this passage here. Christians for thousands of years looked at this passage and said, hear what Jesus is talking about? is that moment when we see him face to face. That moment where all of the world is behind us and we stand in his presence and we gaze upon his beauty in that moment. This passage is talking about the intimacy that you will have with your Savior, your Redeemer. This side of heaven, you see him through a veil. You see him through the word, through a veil. You see him through prayer, through a veil. We are, we are sinful humans and we are a mixed bag. And in our worship, we bring to him our best, but our best is tainted. But one day, you will see him. One day, you will be in his presence. And this is where you're headed. Any Christian that is here today, this is the fixed destination. This is what we long for, to look him in the eyes and to hear from him. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. I can't wait for heaven. There are people I want to see. I've got two brothers 
who beat me to heaven. And I'm going to find Michael. I'm going to find Matthew. I want to catch up with them. I guess there's going to be a line. I don't know how this works. But I got some questions about that I want to ask Elijah. I want to find Elijah, and I'm sure there's a line of people that want to ask him, what was it like to be in that whirlwind and be taken up to heaven? I want to find Enoch, and I want to ask him, Enoch, what was it like to, in the book of Genesis to, to walk with God and be no more? What, what is that talking about? I want to find the Apostle Paul. There's going to be a lot of preachers in that line. Paul, you wrote a lot, and it was hard to explain. Help me. I want to find, I want to find Mary, the mother of Jesus. I want to ask her, what was it like to have the angel of the Lord come before you and as a teenage girl have the weight of humanity and the salvation of all who would turn in dwelling in you in your womb what was it like to see the one that you carried and raised and taught to speak and to walk hanging upon the cross and the tears that you had what was it like Mary I want to find Mary I want to find Esther I want to find Esther. I want to stand in the line and I want to say, Esther, what was it like for such a time as this to stand before this heinous act of Haman and to stand strong? I want to find Deborah, that great judge, used by God with such courageous boldness. I want to find her. I don't say I've read about you, but I want to meet you. And I'm sure there's a line, but there's, there's one place where there won't be a line in light of my brothers and grandparents and family and friends that are there in heaven in light of all these biblical characters that are there in heaven. One day I'm going to get to heaven. I'm not waiting in a line. I'm going to look into my Savior's eyes and I will see him face to face. This, my friends, is where we're headed. This, my friends, is the boat of salvation with a fixed destination. The question is, are you in that boat? Let us pray.